Ameda Ana Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Public speaking is not just about getting on stage and giving a tech talk. It's also about communicating effectively in team meetings. Lara Hogan, VP of Engineering at Kickstarter, presents a path to improving public speaking, especially for people in the tech field. We also talked about engineering teams and leadership, and her latest book titled Demystifying Public Speaking. To learn more about the topics of the show, sign up for the monthly newsletter by going to thewomenintechshow.com. Thank you for listening. Lara Hogan, VP of Engineering at Kickstarter, is joining us today, and we're going to be talking about leadership, engineering teams, and your latest book titled Demystifying Public Speaking. Lara, welcome to the Women in Tech show. Thank you. Those are some of my favorite topics. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. And prior to your time at Kickstarter, you were at Etsy, where you went from engineering manager to senior director of infrastructure. And recently, I read a blog post that you wrote about your time there and some of the most important lessons that you learned. And the first one that caught my attention is that you learned a lot from messy and unscoped problems. <laughs> Absolutely true. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean by this? What are some of those problems? Yeah, you know how um, sometimes you get a manager who wants to only hand you super well-scoped, super well-documented projects that they can just hand off to you? Those are, in my experience, they can help me get started with building a new skill set. But to really learn how to grow as a leader, I found that I most benefited from messy unscoped, kind of gnarly problem sets. Um, and I feel like as engineers, we often <laughs> gravitate towards those kinds of problems anyway. So whether it was trying to figure out how to restructure our organization in engineering, whether it was trying to develop a new travel and entertainment policy based on budget needs, there often wasn't something documented or, you know, something that I could kind of like learn from at the company. I would often have to lean on networks of support outside the company or, or, you know, gather insights from multiple different resources to try to figure out like how to problem solve some of those like super interesting, yes, yeah, super messy problem sets. And this manager that was giving you this messy unscoped problems, his name is Jason Wong. Yeah. You also mentioned him as a great example of somebody that worked against typical unconscious bias, like promoting men based on potential but promoting women based on experience. What actions did you see him taking to effectively prevent this? I cannot speak highly enough about Jason. He was just, you know, the most phenomenal manager. So yeah, so when it comes to the unconscious bias stuff, there are some cases where as a leader, an engineering leader, I can kind of tackle issues head on myself. So whether that's giving someone critical feedback, whether that's, um, you know, coaching someone to behave differently, there's definitely a large subset of, of problems that I can kind of tackle in the diversity and inclusion space. But I'm also a member of an underrepresented group in tech as a woman in tech. And Jason, I think he was easily one of the most helpful allies to me because Some individuals would listen to him more than they would listen to me. And he was always so phenomenal at 
being inquisitive, asking open questions, asking coaching questions to make sure that he didn't put someone on on a defense, but was still always able to like help level the up their game and give them the feedback that they needed to hear in a way that they could hear it. So for example, at one point, an engineering manager introduced a Slack bot that was an attempt to curb everyone's use of guys. So, you know, like someone would type, hey, guys, and the bot would respond like, hey, maybe you mean folks or y'all or, you know, trying to promote some more inclusive language. Mm-hmm. There was an extremely negative minority backlash, as in like there weren't a lot of people who, who responded negatively to this, but they were allowed. And I found that I was a lot less influential in helping them see a different perspective to this to the spot as I was trying to aid this engineering manager. And so I called in Jason and said, hey, here's his problem. Can you help? And without even needing really clear instructions from me and what I thought would be most helpful, he was able to act of his own volition and not put the burden on other marginalized groups to kind of like help to curb the behaviors of the people who were responding the most negatively. Yes. And I think that's definitely one thing that most companies need to do or if person knows that they have power or they're already very high up the chain at a company they should lead by example and if they're heard most of the time like you mentioned your manager was yeah giving the conversation shifting the conversation to you for example then people are going to be like oh jason listens to lara (laughs) a lot and then this unconscious bias slowly starts disappearing i think Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, Jason performs allyship in a myriad of ways. It's often this stuff when it's really done well is invisible to me. Like I'm sure that even behind the scenes, he was doing so much more stuff to be a sponsor for members of underrepresented groups in tech and to be a real ally to us too. Another thing that you learned during your time at Epsi was how to handle difficult conversations that can happen at a company. What are some of these conversations, do, do they involve <laughs> layoffs or things like that? Or I mean, it really runs the spectrum, right? Like um, okay. from, uh, hey, everybody, we need to move our desks to a different part of the office. That can be a difficult conversation. <laughs> yes, exactly. All the way through giving tough feedback to someone who needs to hear it, to helping to like, de-escalate some really intense technical decision-making disagreements. I think that, you know... The hardest problems with computers aren't really the computers, it's the humans behind the computers. And having difficult conversations is just like a necessary part of that. Exactly. And like you mentioned, feedback is very important. And I've heard different approaches to giving feedback recently. AJ, some gaming company was saying that she tailors the feedback in different ways depending on the person. Sometimes it would be through a meme or an email or just a letter How do you handle giving feedback to other people in your team? Yeah, I love the idea of customizing your feedback, not just how you deliver it in terms of the words that you choose, but also the medium. So when I first start a reporting relationship with someone, you know, they've changed managers to report to me, or maybe I was hired in to be their manager. In our first one-on-one, I ask a whole series of questions, um, one of which is, how often do you like feedback? Do you prefer it kind of as it happens? Like if I observe something in a meeting, do you want to know right after? Or would you prefer more routine, um, you know, feedback and saved for one-on-ones? That helps me get a sense of whether or not um, they have a preference for like as it happens or with the cadence. And additionally, I like to ask, you know, what is the best medium for you? Is it email? Is it Slack? Is it face-to-face or over video? And 
truly everyone is different. What one person prefers, another person might hate. So it's really been valuable for me to kind of collect this data from people who report to me right even in the first one-on-one before I actually have feedback to give to them. Because it can be super awkward the first time you need to give feedback if you don't already know how they prefer to receive it. And this might may or may not have happened to you, but if you had a situation where a person in your team doesn't really know how to take feedback or doesn't take it into action for some reason, how would you approach this? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, there's a variety of reasons why someone may be unable to hear the feedback. So there's this model called the SCARF model that's patented. You can Google it. But the SCARF model is like an acronym that helps us understand the five main reasons why people get triggered. So S stands for status. So, you know, is the feedback that I'm getting or the situation that's making me uncomfortable, do I feel like it's a threat to my place in the hierarchy? That's status. Certainty is how certain do I feel that what I believe is going to happen in the future is actually going to happen. So when it feels like a lot of stuff is changing, certainty can be an issue. The A stands for autonomy. So, you know, obviously it's straightforward. How free do I feel to make my own decisions? R is for relatedness. So it's kind of like status in that it's like understanding your place, but it's more about how do I relate to this group? Do I suddenly feel like I'm at risk of being an other to this otherwise a group that I felt like I was a part of? Mm -hmm. And then fairness is the F. So fairness is like something that I think we all can get triggered by. Mm -hmm. So when someone is having a hard time hearing feedback, I kind of ask myself, of those five letters, status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness, which one may be the most triggering to them? And could that be possibly related to why they're having a hard time digesting this feedback I have for them? That's a really good method of analyzing this versus just making assumptions. If you have a certain set of rules, yeah, that's more scalable, I think. Yeah. And another important part of your time at Etsy and your career in general is this question of what your next role should look like after Etsy, you came to Kickstarter as VP of engineering. How did you make that decision? First, I took a step back to ask myself kind of what was going to be really important for me in my next role, both in terms of the environment that I wanted to be in, but also in terms of what the primary responsibilities of my day-to-day job would be. So in terms of the environment that I wanted to be in, Etsy is a B Corp, so they've got a socially good bottom line in addition to their financial bottom line. And I was looking at other companies that had the B Corp certification or were a public benefit corporation, so it's a form of incorporating, or some other kind of values alignment, which Kickstarter definitely has. Kickstarter is a public benefit corporation. Secondly, I was thinking about, you know, what are the day-to-day responsibilities and what would I want out of them? Because engineering leadership, there's a spectrum, right? There's the research aspect and the science aspect. There's the technical strategy aspect. There's the people operations aspect. There's so many different, you know, kinds of engineering leaders and responsibilities that I narrowed it down to really wanting something that was people-focused and organizational-focused. So, I looked for companies who had an interest specifically in engineering management as a practice because I love engineering management. I love talking about it. I love coaching others about it. I I love helping level up other engineering managers. Mm -hmm. So I looked for a company that in particular knew that they wanted more of a practice around engineering management. They were curious about it, but maybe they hadn't done a lot yet on it. And I was lucky enough to find Kickstarter, which is just phenomenal this way. The engineering managers who are at Kickstarter are just 
incredible empathetic humans that I feel so values aligned with. And they were really looking for someone to come in and help to add some more process and some more structure around engineering management. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it was a great fit. Is that part of the role of VP of engineering to just managing teams and finding the direction of the product or what is involved in this role? Yeah, VP of engineering, I found means very different things at very different companies and very different sizes of companies. So Kickstarter is like, I think less than 150 people. The engineering team is about 35 people. Mm -hmm. So here the VP of engineering really is thinking about organizational design and technical strategy. And my role reports directly to the CEO. Whereas at other companies, you might also have like a CTO, chief technical officer, who may be more focused on any of those things I mentioned, right? The technical strategy, the, the research and the scrappy science, the people ops. I wish that there was like a better shared understanding of what these roles mean. But the best, honestly, the best definition I've found can be found in Camille Fournier's book, The Manager's Path, where there's a whole chapter just on the VP of engineering and chief technical officer titles and kind of what the different possibilities are for the responsibilities of each. And as I was researching for this interview, I saw on your LinkedIn, somebody that recommends you said... Lara has a phenomenal gift for managing a team. What are good qualities and bad qualities for managing a team? Yeah. Again, I can't talk enough about uh, Camille's book, The Manager's Path. Uh, she goes into this in okay. so much more depth, and I recommend it to everybody, even non-managers. But for me, managing a team comes down to being able to understand the differences in individuals. So everybody kind of brings their own special sauce to their engineering practices. And it's really important as a manager to understand the balance of those different skill sets and those different areas of improvement. Because really what it comes down to is a whole team is made up of individuals and it's important to understand the dynamics that may ensue, watch out for sticky situations that may pop up, but also understand what this team needs to be successful. So I like to kind of get to know everybody's individuals and adapt my management style to what their needs are or what the needs of the product or the other aspects of the process are needed. How would you begin to approach conflict between teams? For example, this can happen if the dev team wants to switch to a different technology. I don't know, Node.js. But the ops team doesn't really want to because it all involved changing the continuous integration pipeline. What steps would you take to begin to manage this conflict and get to our resolution? <laughs> this is a great question. It sounds like you may have some recent experience in managing conflict between teams. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> yeah, so it really depends on the kind of conflict. So obviously, like technical decision making is one really big kind of conflict that pops up in our world. Often conflict can arise around departures from existing technology decisions or patterns or, or the technical stack. You know, we see this a lot when people are kind of arguing about languages that are different from what's currently being used. John Osbaugh recently wrote a phenomenal post specifically about managing this kind of conflict and developing processes around, you know, improving the process by which you make technical, technical decisions as a group, um, especially because, again, humans are the hardest part about computer <laughs> engineering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the tips that I like to provide for people when they're 
you know, having this kind of conflict is to be really proactive about listing trade-offs. I think it's really important when you're suggesting a departure from the existing process or pattern to be able to articulate proactively without having to be asked, hey, I'm optimizing for this part of it. Maybe I'm optimizing for performance with this new pattern. This is going to be a departure from our tech stack. And the trade-offs that I'm weighing are readability, maintainability, you know, stuff like that. And so as by acknowledging the trade-offs, like here's some of the ways I'm trying to mitigate this. I'm adding more documentation or, you know, something else. And by listing those three things, the optimization, the thing that you're optimizing for, the trade-offs that you're naming, and then the ways that you're mitigating those trade-offs, it can start to deflate some of the emotions that might surround the conflicts that will arise because people know that you're thinking proactively about it and trying to address proactively the concerns that they might have. And I guess once people see this logical steps of what what are we optimizing and the conflict resolution, the emotions hopefully just go away, right? People don't necessarily leave teams because of this. Totally. It comes back to that scarf model, right? Like when people have conflict, are they worried about their status? Will people look down on them? Are they feel like their status is threatened by this new pattern that's being introduced? How certain are they that the language that they've been using the most is going to continue to be the language in the future? Autonomy about their own decision-making. Uh, if someone introduces a new framework and they don't know about it, that could affect their relatedness. They'll start to feel othered from the group. And then fairness can feel like, oh, this person is just, you know, introducing all this new stuff. It's not fair. I'm going to have to learn all these new things. It really can go any of those ways. So proactively addressing that you're making a trade-off and talking explicitly about what you personally are optimizing for, I think can go a long way to preventing, uh, you know, people's amygdalas from being hijacked. And as a manager, sometimes you might end up inheriting a team that you didn't specifically hire yourself And sometimes there are engineers that are very good with technical skills, but struggle to communicate effectively. Sometimes I've met people through meetups or reunions, and it strikes me how much they can struggle to communicate. So I wonder, <laughs> how does a manager tell them or guide them that they need to improve yeah. in communication? I think that no matter the topic of feedback, the best way to handle it is to capture observable instances of the behavior that you want to give feedback on. Again, it, feedback can't be based on your opinion. That, that doesn't land very well. So, you know, I observed you said this in the meeting or I observed you said this on Slack or, or good places to start with feedback and then follow it up with the impact that that observable behavior has. So, you know, I saw this line that you said in Slack no, um, the impact of saying this is that it made a bunch of people frustrated and upset and then follow that up with the action that you suggest. So instead of saying this thing during, in Slack, how about instead you walk over to people's desks and ask them a question? So, you know, you provide the combination of those three, the observation of the behavior, the impact of the behavior, and then your suggested action. And usually that can help curve especially communication breakdowns because people don't often realize the impact of their behavior. And... You studied philosophy and visual media in college. <laughs> What are aspects of philosophy that you found the most useful throughout your career? Yeah, I loved earning my philosophy degree. Philosophy really puts you through the ringer for figuring out how to problem solve really effectively. And it's also because you have to write so many papers in which you make arguments and need to support them up, yeah. you know, support your thesis statement with evidence. It got me really good, frankly, at like getting really succinct 
clear arguments out there and supporting it with my evidence in a way that I think has really leveled up my tactical documentation game, my email communication game. Um, it's frankly helped me write books. It's a lot easier to write the books that I've written because of my practice with the philosophy degree of that kind of that process. Yes. And just like we talked about earlier, for example, me, when I give feedback, I don't always map it to the exact consequence. Like you might get people mad or you might not get funding. So that's a really good way of that shows this research process that you went through. And let's talk a little bit about hiring. How do you evaluate candidates when you're looking for someone? Yeah, the thing I look for the most these days is problem solving, autonomous problem solving ability. So when I was doing a lot of hands-on interviewing for engineers, these days I'm, I'm mostly hiring for engineering managers, but back in the day when I was interviewing engineers, I would often give them a problem that was really Googleable. And I would say, I'm not expecting you to know how to do this. Uh, for example, I would say, um, here's this image with a bunch of geometric shapes in it here's a computer and your editor of choice. I want to see um, you walk through the steps of like figuring out how to recreate this image just using CSS. I know I am not expecting you to already know this. So please feel free to use Google. I might be asking you questions as I kind of see you put it together and definitely ask me questions too. That way I can kind of see how any candidate will walk through the problem solving process autonomously. I want to see how blocked they get when with a problem like this and, and how they typically unblock themselves. I also had plenty of candidates solve the problem really fast by some really good Googling and a really good question asking. So then I'll start to ask them about how to optimize it, how they would think about refactoring it and kind of pair on that. It really gave me a huge insight to their problem solving abilities, which is what I prioritize in my hiring. And that's actually more relatable to the job versus just writing on the whiteboard. Oh, totally. Yeah. And even some schools, that's how they're giving tests now. You can just bring your computer and the books and or you can take at home the test as long as you Wow. Yeah. Figure out how to solve it. Yeah, it's way better. Yeah. What about your existing employees? How do you measure how they're performing? That's a great question. I think that because I've now been at Kickstarter for about two months, I've done a lot of like kind of iterative data gathering on people's goals that they have for themselves, kind of where they want to grow. I've been doing some observing, you know, I kind of note down to myself what's surprising about their behavior. And I almost always chalk it up to like, cool, we've either got a really different perspective on how to solve this problem. So I want to ask them about their perspective or I will observe the impact of their behavior that I want to help correct. And so I'll, I'll kind of do the same thing of outlining the, um, the behavior that I've observed, the impact of it, and my suggested action. So I, I basically these days I'm just doing having lots of one-on-ones. So I, I like to have hour-long one-on-ones every single week with my direct reports where we're able to kind of debrief together on like what's going on for them, what they want to be working on, and any feedback that I have for them. What about when somebody communicates you what they want to work on, but deep down or through the circumstances of the organization, that might not be possible at that time. Yeah. How can this be managed? <laughs> yeah, I've seen um, one failure mode of this is a manager trying to make it work and not acknowledging that this won't work up front. <laughs> I try to be as clear as possible up front, like, okay, I hear you. Let me reflect back to you what I think um, I'm hearing you say. Mm -hmm. Here's why I don't think this is a possibility right now explicitly. Maybe there's a circumstance. Maybe you've got other work that we need to prioritize for a deadline. You know, I'll, I'll give very concrete reasons as to why 
I don't think that's the right move. And then ask like, so given that you want to do this and I've outlined what I know to be true today about the constraints, how can we creatively approach this? And sometimes they'll be like, oh, I get it. I didn't know that there were those constraints. Never mind. And it feels fine. Um, other times they're like, oh, I hear your constraints. Here's other ways we can kind of mitigate those so I can still do this thing. So it becomes a, a partnership in creative problem solving while still giving each of us the ability to be really clear and transparent upfront about where we're at with it. Yes, that makes sense. Let's talk now about your latest book titled The Mystifying Public Speaking. One of the things you mentioned is a lot of people might think of public speaking, like getting on stage, maybe picturing somebody like Steve Jobs giving his famous keynotes. But what you say is, You're always going to have to speak, even presenting idea, an idea to your team, even if the team is small, convincing your colleagues. Maybe you want to move to use Git. This actually happened at Microsoft, so I, I bet somebody did some really good public speaking <laughs> there. What are the first steps somebody in tech can take to improve in public speaking? Yeah, I think that the first step for everybody is to kind of identify What in particular might make you nervous about public speaking, if there's anything? I think for the majority of us, we do get nervous about something. There's a really famous study that found that the majority of Americans fear public speaking more than they fear heights or spiders or death. <laughs> so it's a pretty wow. common thing to, to be afraid of. So I, I usually recommend that people think about what specifically makes them nervous. So for me personally, I'm really afraid of tripping and falling as I get on stage, which now I recognize is not everybody's number one fear about public speaking. And so I put a survey out onto Twitter some years ago to kind of collect as, as research data for this book to kind of say, you know, okay, what is your fear? And there was a whole spectrum from fears about your voice, fears about your body, you know, um, fears about being judged, fears about being wrong. Uh, so there's really a spectrum and for everybody it's different, but I recommend figuring out what that is first. Maybe it's multiple fears. And then after you figure out what that is, figure out what you could do to tackle that particular fear, help you overcome or just address and face that particular fear. And in this book, you also mentioned your first talk was a deeply technical keynote on web performance. Yeah. How do you structure an effective technical talk? Yeah, so I really like to follow a pattern of first setting the stage, so like a landscape of information. Here's everything that I observe about this topic, just at a very high level. Then I kind of get into an analysis of what's tricky about it. So in the case of web performance, it's like, okay, websites are slow. My analysis of it is like, Well, we've got a really heavy front end, according to a bunch of data. And then I kind of walk through some potential solutions uh, to like, kind of tackle those problem sets, some reasons why people should believe me. And then I try to end on like a bigger idea. So maybe people already knew everything that there was to know about performance, for example. But in a keynote like that, I will try to end with like a, maybe you have trouble convincing people that performance is important. Yeah. So here are some tactics for changing the corporate culture to start to care about this stuff. And I really like those type of talk endings. <laughs> I've seen several talks like this at, at Velocity where how to convince your manager that you should do this. And it always helps a lot. And when you're giving a talk, do you have a routine of exercises that you do, for example, for your voice or how you stand on yeah, stage? Yeah, I like to power pose before I give a talk. There's a really great 
TED Talk by Amy Cuddy about power posing and how it can be really helpful, definitely your audience should go watch it. Have you done both of them like before a talk to not do a power pose just to see how the talk goes? Yeah, I've definitely had moments where like, it was a surprise talk and I didn't have a lot of time to prepare. And like, oh, okay. it's funny. There may not even be a difference. It may all be in our head, but definitely when I power pose, it feels great. What are examples of topics that you recommend for somebody to choose for their first technical talk? Yeah, that's a great question. I cover a lot of like choosing your topic in the chapter of the book mm-hmm. and I kind of walk through different ways to approach this. I definitely recommend 101 topics as a great way to get started public speaking. I often find that people who are new to public speaking assume that they should give like an innovative talk about something that's never been talked about before, but mm-hmm. that's both like kind of impossible to do. And people benefit a ton from 101 level talks, intro level talks. Honestly, my front end performance basics talk I've given for about five or six years now, and it never gets old. Conferences and audiences love it because even though it may not be new information to you, it's going to be new information to still probably most people. And you can kind of iterate on it and make it better over time. That's part of, I guess, a reason why I haven't given any talks because I also am one of those people that thinks, oh, I have to discover something and something very innovative and give a talk. But you can start off by giving an intro to something. I really like that. The goal is to be a good teacher, right? The goal is to not to blow people's minds. The goal is to like help people learn something. And I hope that for folks who have never given a talk before, they can think about like, what is the information that they really want to share with others? And don't stop yourself by saying, you know, having that little voice in your head that's like, oh, but it's been done before. There are better experts than me. Mm -hmm. Like, what we don't need are experts, but we do need our solid teachers. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I try to help people understand that like basic information is still so helpful to people and it's your job to help make it accessible to everybody. And as you're giving a talk and you're looking at your audience, if you notice the audience starts to look bored or looking at their phones and their computer, do you alter your talk while you're getting this feedback? So... It's funny, um, when people are looking at their phones or at their computers, it may not mean that they're bored. It may mean that you just said something so incredible that they're tweeting it or they're taking notes. (laughs) So I try to recommend to speakers to not get up in their heads too much if they feel like the crowd is really silent. Um, especially because audiences internationally respond very differently. Like I found that when I give talks in England, for example, very few people will ask me questions while I'm still on stage. They'll typically ask me questions when I'm off stage over on the side. And so I try not to use the lack of questions as an indicator of like, oh, people were really bored or people don't have any, you know, people weren't grabbed by my topic. Mm -hmm. So definitely try as, as best as you can while you're on stage to not worry too much. And I just plan on going and getting the information afterwards about how your information landed. Another topic you present in this book is handling aggression and harassment in the QA portion of the talk. So I'm curious, because I haven't seen this, in what ways can this be presented, aggression and harassment? Yeah, it's too bad that this is a thing. Um, So it can take a bunch of different formats. Often the one that I've seen the most, it's less aggressive and it's more just kind of um, difficult to handle on stage, which is someone presenting more of a statement than a question. You know, someone who probably just wants to hear themselves talk. And so they're raising their hand or grabbing the microphone in order to hear the sound of their own voice. My recommendation on dealing Mm -hmm. with this is to just remember that 
you know, you are seeing, you are witnessing what's happening. You're recognizing that this is much more about this question asker than it is about you and your audience sees it too. I have definitely been in audiences where someone's kind of posturing or, or making more of a statement. And I can tell you as an audience member, I'm rolling my eyes and like, oh, when will this person stop talking? And so if you're up on stage and this mm-hmm. happens to you, remember that the audience is totally rooting for you. And they are there to learn. And they're to learn the information that you have to present. And you're still totally in control as this is happening. If you could teach one thing to everyone about to give a presentation what would it be? It would be to do a practice run of Q&A with a bunch of trusted advisors beforehand. So, you know, we all should be doing practice runs of your whole talk, but I think a lot of people forget that they can do a practice run of the Q&A too. Ask your feedback crew to ask you questions about your topic when you're wrapped up with your practice run and get the hang of what it feels like to be improvising on the spot and coming up with answers on the spot. Because the whole rest of the time, you know, you've got planned words that you want to say. So it can be kind of nerve wracking <laughs> to do Q&A without a practice run. Yes. And this can also apply to what we talked earlier. Even when you're giving a talk to your team about convincing them for some technology, just to brainstorm possible questions that they're going to ask you. Totally. Yeah. Could be really helpful. Well, Lara, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun for me. 